This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wonderful World of Remnant Radio. I've got Mark Ward with us, one of our favorite guests, and we're talking about the Tree of Life version. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching the Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. One of the things that happens a lot when you're in the theology space is people talk about Bible translations, sometimes ad nauseum. One of the things I love about Mark is he helps the body of Christ really have confidence that the modern translations that they have their hands on are good Bible translations. It's been fun to kind of walk alongside Mark and see him start his YouTube channel and produce some just fantastic content. So if you don't know who Mark is, uh, this video has a tag in it. It's, you know, we, we're interviewing Tree of Life Bible uh, with Mark Ward, and you'll see the at symbol there. It's like in blue and highlighted. If you click that, you can go check out Mark Ward's channel. So after this video, click that link in the description and you can go subscribe over to Mark's content. Because one of the things we want to do here at Remnant is put microphones into the right faces. Uh, And Mark is doing a fantastic job on YouTube doing some really scholarly work. And these videos are concise and punchy. So I would encourage you to go subscribe over there if you want to be continually encouraged and edified when it comes to things like Bible translations. Uh, Without further ado, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is an entirely crowdfunded program. So uh, if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description for you to do that. The top link is for PayPal, and the link right underneath it is for Patreon. So if you want to support the channel, a one-time gift there on PayPal, uh, as low as or whatever price you would like to give on PayPal, but as Patreon, because five bucks a month, you get access to extra content. So uh, if that's something that interests you, uh, check out the link of the description. Without further ado, oh man, I do this sometimes with the e-cams and trying to figure out which one's which. There we go. I almost redid the intro. Oh my gosh, talk about unprofessionalism. Uh, anyway, uh, Michael, how are you doing over there in Oklahoma? Before I introduce Mark, <laughs> shake your head with I'm, disdain. I'm doing good, man. Doing good. So not much to report here. Um, so excited to have Mark on the show, though. Mark's one of our, uh, Josh said this uh, just, just a minute ago, but Mark, you're one of our favorite guests. I love your your scholarship, just the what you bring to the table in terms of your understanding of languages. Uh, and yet your irenic tone. And, uh, and so anyway, just really appreciate you. And so excited to talk a little bit about the tree of life version, uh, which uh, you, we'll want you to tell us just a little bit about. But, uh, but even before we get into that, I just love to, uh, to have you maybe introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, not maybe not everybody's heard of you. And so just tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry. Josh just mentioned your YouTube channel. Uh, so maybe you could talk about that a little bit too. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me on again, guys. It's really an honor. It was really great to run into you at the Evangelical Theological Society annual meeting last November, too. That was really fun just to get to see you guys in person. And I love the the setup you're giving me because everybody's mentioning how ironic I am right before I go talking about a translation I just called sectarian. Uh, but that actually is a lead in to my uh, answer to your question, what's my ministry? I grew up in King James onlyism, and I always follow that up with, I had a good experience, wonderful teachers, godly people taught me well, taught me to love God's word, but there was this extra element that the way you're supposed to love God's word is by reading it in only this one translation. And as I learned the biblical languages and got some good teaching on the doctrine of bibliology myself, uh, I started to realize, wow, um, what they told me, you know, wasn't quite accurate. And I want them to know the joys that I know of checking multiple Bible translations. Starting when I was 19, no, 18 years old in 1999, I spent 50 bucks, you know, with, you know, adjusted for inflation. That's probably like $5,000 on a uh, comparative study Bible with four different versions in it. And I just got so much benefit out of that. Then the Lord sent me into uh, evan regular evangelistic ministry in a not-so-nice part of town, and I was, I, I would say, radicalized there against any form of traditionalism that pulls the Bible out of the language of the common people, whom the King James translators called the very vulgar, but whom you should not call the very vulgar because that the meaning of those words has changed. And that's my big ministry on YouTube, pointing out that because of language change, the King James Version, although it was an excellent translation into its English, is no longer fully intelligible. But I, I had actually a Presbyterian pastor who loves the King James kind of complain nicely to me. We had a great conversation. We're not kind of the same page, but talk about ironic tone. He had that toward me. Uh, he said, I never hear you criticize the bad in Bible translations out there. So that kind of sat with me and uh, the Text and Canon Institute now uh, run by Peter Gurry. I don't know if you've, I think you, I think I mentioned it to you guys that you should have yeah. Peter Gurry and John Mead from there on the show. Um, they asked me to write on Bad Bibles. So I did a two-part series. One's come out already and one's going to come out next month. And they're also on my YouTube channel uh, on first sectarian Bibles and then crackpot <laughs> Bibles. The latter one was pretty fun. But uh, I'm, I want to talk about one of those sectarian Bibles today, the Tree of Life version. Uh, is that a sufficient no. answer to your question? Yeah, I, I think yes, so. Um, yeah, uh, like if, if people want to follow, subscribe, check out, you've got your YouTube channel. Is, is there a pod, other, other platforms, website, blogs, any, anything like that that you're also participating in? I, I can barely manage to keep up with weekly videos at my YouTube channel. So Praise I God, someone else also has a problem. Just do this. Doing a bunch yep. of content. Yep. Yeah, yeah, good, good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that you're human. Um, so when it comes to uh, this subject, you said sectarian. Now, uh, for those who are listening, it seems as if even when you wrote this article in the video that you did, you placed the tree of life like at the bottom tier of sectarian. Like it seems as if you, right. you held like the, the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Like that's like that's like top tier, top shelf, creme de la creme sectarian where you're like this one right. might not be as sectarian, but you still kind of placed it in that category. And you were way more charitable on uh, the the Tree of Life version, I think, than you were on the others. And that's not to say you weren't charitable. Uh, I think that sure. you were just weighing it with just weights. It doesn't commit the same crimes that the one up there does. No. So uh, can no. you maybe just tell us before we dive into maybe some of your, your complaints or maybe disagreements even with the Tree of Life version, just tell us what the Bible translation is. Why was it put together? Yeah, let me let me start with the latter question. It was put together by 
um, leaders within Messianic Judaism. And I, I admit to not having an excellent understanding of all of Messianic Judaism. It's been a bit of a confusion to me. I feel as if I've encountered people in that world who are responsible with the Bible text, who know what they're talking about. I heard a debate between one of their leaders and N.T. Wright, for example, in which you know each obviously held his own and they were courteous to one another. And, uh, and there's a pastor in my town uh, of a Presbyterian church who stepped down in order to devote himself to a um, Messianic Jewish institution. And I had a coffee with him. Um, and he was persuasive, at least this far, that there, like the Tree of Life version, in, you know, uh, introduction or forward says, there is a Jewish essence to Christianity that sometimes gets overlooked or even downplayed. And my own wife is um, Lithuanian Jewish on her mother's side. And this is a long story, but we kind of fell in love in Lithuania. We were on a mission team in 2006. That's actually one of the awesome things about our story together. Uh, so I think they're on to something. But the Tree of Life version, I actually have it pulled up here in Logos Bible Software. You know, I should say one other positive thing. Um, you know, the reason that I was able to be more charitable toward the Tree of Life version, where I was more condemnatory of the Jehovah's Witnesses New World Translation, is that there's a huge difference between disagreeing with all of Orthodox Christianity, you know, lowercase o, over the Trinity, and pumping your Bible full of Hebrew transliterations. Like one is heresy. That's the New World Translation. I don't mind at all using that, you know, uh, inflammatory word because it shouldn't be inflammatory. Yeah. If you deny the Trinity, you're not a Christian. And it's, yeah. it's a matter of eternal um, heaven or hell. But I do not feel that way about the Tree of Life version. My strong impression is that these are my brothers in the Messiah. But I believed I had to call them sectarian because their method of defending and promoting the, what they call, I have it up here on my screen, the actual Jewish essence of the Bible. And I think there's, especially talking about the New Testament, it gets forgotten there. Uh, their method of doing it, I think, is suspect. I, I, uh, I think it's linguistically suspect, and I think it's suspect in a way that does merit the label sectarian. In other words, they've walled themselves off in a little group that's, I, it's not going to go so far as cult, no way. That, that, that would be inflammatory, way beyond necessary. But they've created a group. I am of Apollos. I am of, you know, Paul. I am of Christ. I am of the Mashiach, uh, which I don't think is warranted. And we can get into further details. And I was actually hoping that you, Josh, because I think you said you've had some experience with Messianic yeah. Judaism. Yeah, we've um, got could, uh, one of my you. good friends who just came in for the weekend, um, set up under uh, Rabbi Schneider, was trained under him. We've spent a lot of time communicating. Uh, we've got people in our community, uh, the church that I, I've planted here in Ada, Oklahoma. Many of them use the Tree of Life Bible. Uh, as far as I am aware, uh, have not heard anything that has caused any concerns personally. Uh, and just reading your articles, the only time I'm <laughs> this week, and again, there's none of this is premeditated. Uh, we ended up having a cancellation. You were so gracious enough to be like, yep, I'm going to come on last minute and engage on the subject. So uh, this the this subject of the Tree of Life Bible, the Jewish roots, uh, have I frankly gleaned a lot of, I think, great positive feedback from my community uh, and their their use of the Bible and their use of Jewish roots as it points us to Christ. Uh, I've I found nothing but positive things thus far. Um, but again, I'm I'm here to bounce those kinds of ideas and what I've heard from this translation off of you, and we can maybe we can come to a, a happy middle ground uh, as we as we wrestle through it all. But 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 as you were, uh, so I was asking you about what made this. Oh, what was the the motivation of the Bible? You were saying uh, it yeah. is 
prim- primarily a messianic group. They wanted to right. infuse, and I heard you say transliterate certain words, and this might be a word, a time to kind of jump in. Um, sure. Maybe define sectarian and maybe define transliterate and translate. Just th- those terms that we keep using. Uh, we're 11 yeah. minutes into the show. And if someone's walked through and heard all these words and they know what they mean, I want to I catch them all up. So, Okay. Uh, uh, my dictionary I just pulled up says a sect is a group of people with somewhat different religious beliefs from those of a larger group to which they belong. And it is often derogatory. And actually, this is news to me. This dictionary says that those beliefs are typically regarded as heretical. I would not have defined the word sectarian that way because I could have just used the word heretical. Uh, to my mind, you leave out that parenthesis. I'm using the, the new Oxford American Dictionary that comes on every Mac. I just like this definition. A group of people with somewhat different religious beliefs from those of a larger group to which they belong. Clearly, Messianic Jews, uh, by and large, belong to Christianity. To Orthodox Christianity. They confess that Jesus came in the flesh, that he died for our sins and rose again the third day, uh, all according to the scriptures, you know, just like 1 Corinthians 15 says. I don't have any reason to disbelieve that, so I would not want to call them heretical. But uh, sectarian, I would, and that means dividing unnecessarily, basically, from other believers. My pastor is going through John 17, where Jesus p- prays for the unity of the church. He prays for the church's unity to be akin to the Trinity's unity, which is just mind-blowing. And then I always think of Galatians 5. Um, it's such a pity to me when people divide over Bible translations. Um, uh, but over, I would say, well, that's, a, that's complex, because I I'm willing to criticize some Bible translations, but let's say our major modern evangelical standard English Bible translations. It's a pity to me when they divide over those because Galatians 5 lists among the works of the flesh contention, uh, division, dissension, and strife. Um, We have to be, yes, willing, I think, to divide from certain people who say they're Christians, but they're not. Uh, like Jehovah's Witnesses, um, in order to uphold the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity. But we also, there's a ditch on the other side where you don't want to be so vociferous, you know, dividing over every last thing, you know, um, uh, called the adiaphora, the, the things that are that ought to be matters of Christian liberty that that aren't important. That's division, contention, and strife. And sects tend to do that. And what I've seen among Messianic Judaism, uh, I don't want to. I don't know if I'm supposed to say Messianic Jews or not. Um, what I've seen among them is um, uh, sprinkling their conversation with as many Hebrew transliterations as possible. And when I say transliterations, I mean they take the Hebrew word and basically uh, move, just use English letters for it. And but they still try to use a Hebrew pronunciation. Um, it's a it strikes me as a special jargon or code that you have to master. And I'm accustomed to pushing back against the King James onlyists who uh, baptize Elizabethan English to serve in that role. You know, it's the sacralized language. Instead, among the Messianic Jews, it's um, it's Hebrew, um, it tossed into English conversation all of the time. And, and it's been done also in this Bible. And I push back against that because First Corinthians 14 describes the uninitiated man coming to the congregation. And if he hears you speaking in tongues, he's going to think you're crazy, untranslated tongues. Um, but if he if he hears you prophesy, Paul says, then in other words, in his own language, then he's going to, you know, his sins are going to be convicted and he's going to fall down. And the King James says he's going to confess that God is in you of a truth. I'm trying to defend that man on the street coming into the worship service and not having to suffer through unnecessary jargon. There are some words that are always going to be theologically rich, propitiation, justification, sanctification. I would hope that if a pastor is aware there are visitors in his congregation, he would define those for them. I'm not asking us to to 
put theology down to the level that anybody off the street can understand it. But I'm asking us to weed out unnecessary archaisms. And in this case, you know, messianic jargon, Hebrew ways of pronouncing things that I don't think are actually communicating any different truth. But they're coming along with this added demand that you master our, I use the word patois in my article, our special way of speaking. I think that runs against the principle of First Corinthians 14. I think it's funny that you use the word patois when talking about people not understanding words in the Bible. Um, anyway, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> just, just a little <laughs> you did explain it. You did explain it. That's fair. Uh, okay. Well, I, I want to try to speak from the perspective of the Tree of Life Bible Society, which does not represent me. I don't represent them. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, but I, I just want to offer what I think would maybe be the pushback that they would offer. And that is kind of what Josh started out with. And that is their, their rationale for creating this uh, translation to start with, which is that there is a, an inherent Jewish character to the scriptures. The uh, the 12 apostles were Jewish. The uh, the Unless we count Luke as a, as a Gentile, which I think he probably was a Gentile, the scriptures were pretty much all written by Jews. And so there's this Jewish character to them that, that even in the language of like, uh, you know, Jesus Christ. And, uh, and they would say that, well, it's the way this is treated in the English is like Christ is just sort of like a, a last name. And so they like to transliterate Yeshua Hasamasha. You can do it better than me. So, um, <laughs> Yeshua Hamashiach. Uh, and that's, yeah. Right. And so that's actually probably your point is like, uh, folks who live in Oklahoma, like Michael can't pronounce the words right. But, um, <laughs> back representing the tree of life bible society here is like there's an inherent jewish character to this and we've we've lost it and now we don't even know the original sort of way of thinking and culture and so we're constantly having to diminish cultural distance when we can just diminish it in our actual translations what would you say to that yeah i i think that's a superficial and actually, ultimately, I have to stand by my principles, anti-biblical way to do it. Um, be, uh, the anti-biblical part is what I already talked about, 1 Corinthians 14. And the superficial part, I would say, if the Bible has this Jewish essence, and I do not deny that, I, I glory in it, because that was God's program all along. It was through Abraham in particular, and his seed, that he was going to bless all the families of the earth then that should be demonstrable from the Bible's story and from the Bible's own statements. You shouldn't have to change the words slander to Lashon Hara, in other words, the tongue of evil, in order to demonstrate the Bible's Jewishness. I, I sort of feel like um, it's cheating uh, and it's unnecessary. It, if that essence is there, and I absolutely think that it is, then bring it out through Bible exposition. You know, one of the major ways this happened for me was when after, boy, 20 years of Christian education, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I, I think this is less common nowadays. Um, I just didn't really understand how the whole Bible story fit together. I didn't see the Bible as one story. I saw it as a bunch of separate stories that all kind of culminated in Jesus. I knew he was the best part, <laughs> but I didn't understand how the Old Testament pointed to him, except from the most obvious, you know, messianic uh, predictions. But um, it was in an Old Testament theology class taught, as it so happens, by a doctor of Old Testament from Puerto Rico, Hispanic. You know, none of us had any Jewish blood that I know of. And he taught me about the Jewish essence of the Bible by showing how God's plan worked through the covenants, particularly those covenants that were um, made with the Jewish people. Um, and then when it comes to like uh, Yeshua, 
Yeshua HaMashiach. Boy, I've got so many linguistic thoughts. The reason I say it's cheating, and again, I boy, I, I hate going hard on people I regard to be brothers, but I, I listened to them. I really tried, and I just wasn't persuaded by their defenses of this. Um, uh, Yeshua is a... Um, is a more Hebrew way of pronouncing it than Jesus, but it's still anglicized. There's just no way that I, as an American English speaker, can pronounce it exactly right the way Hebrews pronounce it today, you know, in Israel, in modern Hebrew, let alone, and even how did exactly did they pronounce it in ancient Israel? And didn't they have regions? You know, people recognize the speech of the Galileans by their accents. Surely there were different accents among those who spoke the Hebrew that we know as biblical. Um, why do I have to say it exactly that way when Jesus in English is already a transliteration of the Hebrew? Ultimately, it comes through Greek, but why should why shouldn't that be okay? And then uh, I I also wonder, okay, if you if you're insisting I got to say Yeshua HaMashiach, which means Jesus the Messiah, Ha just means the, which of course is opaque to people; they don't realize that unless they're taught. Um, what is that criticism not one that you could make of the New Testament writers themselves and therefore of the spirit who you know spoke by them who inspired their writings the spirit could easily have retained the word Yahweh just transliterated it into Greek that's you know the covenant name of God but the spirit did not do this the spirit chose the the Greek equivalent of the word Lord just like the Septuagint did it happens to be kurios and then when it comes to Christ the, the, the spirit absolutely could have made a transliteration into Greek of the Hebrew word Messiah, but did not, instead chose the word Christ. So I don't see how that criticism of standard Christian practice in the English-speaking world doesn't apply to the spirit of God himself and the apostles that he inspired. So I want to unpack that just because I mean, that, though, that was a very eloquent and, and, and theological dense way of communicating this. So I want to kind of unpack those thoughts piece by piece. You're saying that the the Greek writings that we have of the New Testament, who were written by Jewish men, right? So Paul, right. a Jew, when he's writing Jesus Christ, he uses um, is it is it Iso Christus or it, it sounds like Isis, like in yeah. uh, in Islam. How, how do you pronounce it? Well, typically. That's actually a more complicated question than it at first appears, because even in Greek, people pronounce things differently. The, the the fixation on pronouncing things just the way the Bible people did, it's like, how do Americans pronounce the word bag? Well, actually, up here in Washington, they say beg. And um, uh, over in the so South, they, they often up in Washington, is what you're saying. Uh, pen to pin. Yeah, well, you know, who's going <laughs> to say hey, who's right or wrong? I'm just saying that there is no American pronunciation of every word. Hey, uh, so anyway, I went off on that. Yes, it's yes. <laughs> Jesus Bayek. Christos would be, if I recall correctly. the Yeah, so Jesus uh, Christos is the word that the form. Jews were using when writing to Greek speakers. So instead yeah. of the Jews writing the words Yeshua Hamashiach, right? Like Jesus, the Messiah in a right. Jewish phrasing, they choose to render it in Greek. So like Paul, his name, Saul Paul is the same rendering, but it's just a Greek translation of that word. So like we've, we've gotten into that, that theme of just repeating things that, you know, big evangelists say, and we think, well, you know, Paul was knocked off his donkey and his name was changed from Saul to Paul. It's like, no, um, Saul is just Paul in Greek and he actually interchanges the, the the rendering or the, the 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 use of Saul or Paul, you know, throughout the book of Acts, it kind of flip flops throughout the book. So when when Paul, a Jewish man, is choosing to write about uh, this Jewish Messiah, 
he uses a Greek transliteration or a, a, a Greek rendering of Jesus Christus, or and again, I'm not going to pronounce that correctly. Anyway, all that to say is he's using a Greek phrase rather than a Jewish one. And your argument is if the Western translations are anti-Jewish, you actually have to claim that that Paul, who was Jewish, and Peter, who was Jewish, and the writer of Hebrews, who we pretty assume, have to assume is probably Jewish, that all of these Bible authors are also committing the same act of removing Jewish roots from the Bible because they are also using Greek language rather than Hebrew language. Is that right? Yeah, and, and that goes uh, toward the big point that I've been trying to make in the King James only debate and in various other discussions actually of the way Latin is used in the Roman Catholic Church, the way a language you may, might not have heard of unless you've watched a couple of my nerdy videos is, which is like the, the classical language of Ethiopian and is still used in the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church. I have a YouTube viewer that I talked with for an hour about a year ago about this. They still memorize the Bible in is, even though nobody speaks that language. Um, everybody seems to have, I mean, let's say a lot of religious groups have an impulse to sacralize a given language. Of course, it's done with a particular version of classical Arabic in Islam. Um, I have to imagine that another religion is the same is done. It's, it's, I always compare it to um, the, uh, the Harry Potter series where you got to say Wingardium Leviosa, not Wingardium Leviosa. You know, it's just like you got to say it just right because the words are magic. But actually, God didn't choose to communicate that way. He, he just used normal human language, the one that the people he happened to choose, you know, used at the time. Um, we shouldn't, I think it's a trap to go uh, thinking, okay, how, how can I get closer and closer to the original here? And I'm just observing that the apostles and the spirit who inspired them did not fall into that trap. And it's a little more complex than what you're saying. Um, like Jesus that word in Greek is a transliteration of the Hebrew. They just didn't have a sh sound. That's why it's Jesus, okay, or Jesus, uh, very much like in Spanish today. Um, and they, they uh, but the main word here that I'm pointing to is Christ, because that's where they could have transliterated. I don't know, Masia or something like that. I bet you there probably is some a Greek existing transliteration. I've seen transliterations of the word Yahweh, but the spirit and the apostles did not, choose that um I, does that point making sense that's that's no that's a that's a good argument i think i think it's solid um yeah when we're, yeah. When we're reading yeah. through sorry go ahead michael sorry oh yeah it seems to me like even just the the whole usage of the septuagint and the way the septuagint is so often quoted by new testament authors so you have a greek translation of the Old Testament that the authors of scripture are treating as though it is the inspired text. They don't seem to have this. I mean, it's very similar to the argument that you're making that he's uh, that when it comes to the divine names, that he's using the Greek versions of it, but it's beyond the divine names, even the, the entire translation of the Old Testament, they typically quoted from the Greek version, uh, the, what we call the Septuagint. Right. And, uh, and so it seems as though the authors of Scripture don't have this elevated status of Hebrew, although in Acts chapter 6, that uh, you use the word Septuagint, or sorry, Septuagint, sectarian, you kind of have that same sort of idea where the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews are at odds with one another, and, uh, and it's over culture. And so it, it right. feels to me like uh, it, where the Hebraic Jews are kind of like, 
we're the real Jews. You guys are right. the not so real Jews because you've kind of given into this Hellenistic liberalism. And um, right. it seems almost like the same debate happening here with kind of like, well, let's let's side with the Hebraic Jews because they were really right. Am I being too harsh in that uh, evaluation? And is my rationale, would you agree with it? I, I would want to hear Josh speak to this after I do with maybe some more authority than I do because I, I wish I could say I had more direct experience with Messianic Judaism. But I, I will observe, let me t say two quick things. Uh, one is that actually this past weekend, I was in God's providence speaking at a family camp for a church in my state and got to take my kids. We had a great time. And it just so happens, one of the elderly men that attends that church is a former Israeli pastor of you know decades. And one of the earliest Christian pastors, as I understand it, within the um you know the modern state of israel and he reminded me that there is such a thing in the new testament as judaizing there is there is an allowable uh breadth of cultural practice that paul talks about in romans 14 you know certain people observe certain days certain people uh, observe certain dietary laws as long as it's merely cultural it seems paul is allowing liberty for that but the instant it becomes salvific, that's Judaizing. And that, I just think anybody in the Messianic Jewish world who sees value in, you know, rediscovering the Jewish essence of the Bible, and again, as far as that goes, more power to them, let's not forget that there is, there is a danger on that side. And the more you buy into the culture, the more the feast days become not optional, but required and biblical. And Paul said, you are not under law. Um, if that was one thing I was going to say, I forget the other thing. I would actually love to hear from you on this, Josh. No, I, I, I would say that, that that's, an, that's a subject that comes up in our community regularly of we can approach the, the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws, those kinds of things out of liberty and not out of obligation. So um, I think there's a rich culture with, within our, our region and uh, the Jewish roots that have been here presently, uh, that they have used these things to point us to Christ. And then when we, we read like the book of John and we see Jesus going to these festivals and feasts, like, oh, it's, it, it doesn't really change the story too much. Um, I, I equate it to watching um, a film in black and white and watching a film in, you know, HD color. Um, it, it doesn't change the unfolding of the story, but it does bring a greater level of clarity to the story. So the way that um, a lot of my Jewish roots friends will practice um, sometimes even dietary laws, sometimes festivals and new moons and whatnot, not out of obligation, but out of liberty um, as a way to remind them of the biblical story. And as they're yeah. you know, gathering around the scriptures and flipping through and they're, they're reading the story of Jesus standing up on the temple on this day and Jesus you know, standing up on the temple on that day and saying this phrase or that phrase and, and how that connects to uh, some festival that was going on and, and how that would had a, kind of unlocked some new ideas to the Jews at that time, it, it kind of brings new light to it. So, so I would agree there is a modern day Judaizing kind of movement that would, that would push people into these things out of obligation. And, and Paul very clearly in Galatians uh, says that, that that kind of Judaizing, that kind of gospel presentation out of forced obligation Paul says very clearly in, in Galatians chapter one is another gospel. Not that it is another gospel, right. but it is a false gospel. And those who, right. who right. preach that kind of uh, of doctrine, he says, are anathema and damned for destruction. So as 
as cordial and kind as we're being, I do feel like that's the line where I go, we can't right. cross that territory. And right. to be fair, we're now switching our subject from this Bible translation into what Judaizing right. uh, looks like. I don't think this Bible translation is guilty of that in any way uh, of, of requiring people to do that. Uh, but this yeah. is just kind of picking up on the, the tail end of your question to me about where that line right. is. Yeah. Is that right? And, and to be Sorry, I'm I'm inserting myself because there's just some people in the chat that think that think we're accusing the the Tree of Life version of, of Judaism. No. no, 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 no. Mark didn't say that. Judaizing. Josh didn't say that, and uh, and in fact, they both denounced that. So let's just be clear: we're not equating this with Judaizing, with with the suggestion that uh, that those who use this Bible translation are seeing it as somehow salvific. Uh, no. We're so by no means is that being said. I, and I think I would just say this for me, and this is just Michael Roundtree's perspective. I think that the, the danger of uh, uh, the danger here with, with any of the, like the, if we're talking about new moons and festivals and all, all of this stuff, there's, there's the salvific side of it, which is the Judaizing, which this translation doesn't do. And then there's the superiority. And I, and I think when you use the language of sectarian, I, I, I get the sense that that's kind of what you're talking about is like this idea that Hebrew as a language is superior right. and that using transliterating these words uh, and, and speaking in this jargon kind of makes this superior. And of course, any group can do that with any, any Bible translation. Right. And so uh, anyway, right. I would just make that point too. I, Mark, I think I so, didn't mean to cut you off. So go ahead. Can, I know can you, we, uh, Oh no, it's fine. Oh, can, can Please we ask, go. I'll, I'll I want to kind of toss over to you like the some positive things like because though though we're kind of coming at this from you know uh from your perspective of like hey you know th these are some of my concerns i feel like it's unnecessary to to fill jewish words in when god inspired jewish men to use greek words why would we then move back in jewish words uh, we're, we're kind of coming at this from a you know uh i would say rather critiquing or critical standpoint, but but we also have, you know, scholars of scholars on this. I mean, you got guys like Craig Keener, you know, world-class New Testament scholar. You've got Dr. Michael Brown, Richard extremely Richard. respected mm -hmm. in, yep. you know, uh, yep. in both Jewish roots uh, communities and just everyday Protestant charismatic spaces. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Seif, um, um, I, I had the opportunity to run into him. I know all of these people, and I would consider all these people friends. Je Jeffrey probably couldn't remember me from Adam's Orphan, but uh, uh, we, we bumped into each other, you know, five to six years ago at Christ for the Nations. It might have been longer than that. I'm not a good gauge of time. Uh, but but these are there's great men and women used in this Bible translation. Yes. Um, would would you say that this is really a philosophical difference on Bible translation? Would you call it a preference? You know, when when you're crit criticizing or critiquing this translation, certainly you're not coming against these scholars and saying their scholarship's bad. But it seems like the philosoph the philosophy of why to do a translation like this is really uh, the sticking point for you. Is that is that right? Yeah, and you know, I do live in the academic world, biblical studies world, and I know when I'm hearing from another biblical studies academic. And when I read the materials that were trying to defend and promote and explain the work of the Tree of Life version, I felt like I wasn't getting that. I don't know who wrote the introduction, for example, but um, I, I also went on YouTube and just tried to listen uh, to various figures who were associated with it and the, the kinds of things I was hearing. Now, let me, you asked for something positive. 
I'm an evangelical. I believe in the gospel with all my heart. I believe the gospel has to go to the nations, including God's chosen nation, the ethnos, the Jews. So the impulse that I, the evangelistic impulse that I think apparently from what I can tell uh, lies behind much of the tree of life version, I defend and love that impulse. And the first amount of pause I got after I released this video and was getting comments, you know, I released it in video and article form, came when people were saying, well, what if the audience for this translation is one you just don't understand? And I thought, oh, no, you know, well, maybe that's true. Maybe there are Jewish people out there like in New York City or something who have this special almost like Creole language where, you know, sort of like Yiddish was a mixture of Hebrew and German, as I take it. Maybe there's something like that in English where instead of saying slander, they say Lashon Hara. But as best I can discover, that just isn't the case. Um, we're not talking about, like, for example, Hawaiian pigeon. Um, I was just in Hawaii. My sister lives there. She goes to a church there that attracts a lot of Hawaiians. Um, and pigeon, you know, is a real language that I heard at the grocery store. I was actually pausing um, to see if I could listen to some of it. It was so fascinating. But the Hawaiian Pigeon New Testament, if you pick it up and you have no idea where it's coming from, it kind of sounds like it's coming from the inner city U.S. a little bit. And I've had people mock it for that reason in total ignorance of the existence of people who use this as a language every day. So I wondered momentarily was I one of those ignorant people and I had criticized a language I don't understand? I am still open to that criticism, um, but as best I can tell, that is not the case. I've checked with, I've tried to do my homework on this. There's nobody who's talking like this. This isn't a language. Um, sprinkling your, uh, your English full of Hebrew transliterations doesn't count as a, a, as a language. So I, I honor the impulse but I do question, like you said, the the philosophy. And a, another little comment here, this I offer more like for what it's worth because I cannot verify this. But when I spoke to uh, this uh, Israeli man who's been a Christian pastor for decades, he's in his retirement years, he said that the vast majority of so-called Messianic Jews are actually Gentiles. And I thought, whoa, if that's the case, Yep. then that's even it's it's impossible then that these folks are speaking a particular version of english that has a bunch of hebrew thrown into it and we need to reach them in their language no that's not that's not what's going on here and that does accord with my you know limited uh experience it sounds I, like from that yeah josh it accords with yours yeah i would i would say that those that i have found and this is not true of all this is painting with a broad brush so i ask people give me grace I think that what is extremely attractive to a lot of the people in the Jewish roots community is that they came from a form of evangelical nominalism that didn't have any deep study, um, no ritual whatsoever, uh, no patterns, no habituation of practice in any way. And they found um, someone that was going to say, hey, um, no one's really taught you the Bible. Let me Let me show you what this means. And they just showed a level of richness and depth to the Old Testament sure. that brought meaning and clarity to the New Testament. They could see that this is one unified story that led to Jesus. And, and in my experience, um, most of the Gentile people who just didn't understand the Bible well were just held by the hand by someone who took the time that cared and explained to them the Old and New Testament in a meaningful way. And and then they just got sucked in and they're like, hey, you know, uh, it, it's like, 
it's like the Bible story comes alive to you and you feel like, okay, well, I had a form of practice before where the Bible was kind of dead to me. And now someone has showed me this, this other way of, of this ritual and this beauty and this, this pattern and habituation. And, and they gravitate towards that because it, it's given the Bible meaning. It's given their Christian faith more depth. Uh, that's been my perception. And, and as far as I can tell, um, I don't, I mean, I know a lot of people in the Jewish roots movement. I don't know if any of them are Jews. Like, uh, I think Greg Stone that I've met at Gateway was an actual Jewish person, but uh, very, very few of them are as, as far as I've, I've met personally. Michael, do you want to pick up? Sorry, that was a, that was a, (laughs) go ahead, Michael. (laughs) You're muted. This is that part of the show where Josh just puts the camera on me for no reason. Um, Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll ask, I'll just ask a question I've been curious about as we've been talking because, um, uh, we've talked about a, a little bit about just the divine names and uh, and I'm specific uh, divine names, divine titles. I'm specifically interested in Yahweh and how that is translated by the Hebrew roots uh, or not the Hebrew roots by uh, the uh, Tree of Life Bible version. And uh, and the reason, you know, even for me as someone like I'm expositing the Psalms right now, and I feel like every week I'm like. When you yeah. see Lord in all caps, it's the divine name Yahweh. I almost tire of it. I'm kind of like, why don't right. our English Bibles just put the divine name in there? I'm curious what uh, what they do in the in the Tree of Life version, and secondarily, what you think of English Bibles doing the all caps L O R D. Maybe there's a good reason, yeah. a, a better reason than yeah. that you could give me. <laughs> there is. That's a great question, and I'm on much more stable ground here. I also want to say, please give me grace on my discussions of Messianic Judaism. Um, I admit an, a level of ignorance that's probably not healthy to admit, having just gone into the topic some. Um, I am, my most familiar ground, my briar patch, is Bible translation and, and the biblical languages. And that's the angle through which I entered this discussion. That was the first thing that piqued my interest. So a great passage to go to when uh, um, considering this is Psalm 110.1, because that's the one that distinguishes Yahweh from Adonai. So, and it's the most commonly quoted Psalm in the New Testament, um, and which is going to come in a little bit later. So in the ESV, you know, kind of my default translation, but I use tons of them. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's from a Christian understanding, that's the father speaking to the son. And let's not just say a Christian, Christian understanding, that's Jesus's understanding that he quotes in the New Testament. He's applying this to himself, quite obviously. The Father says to the Son, the Lord says to my Lord. And if you look at it in the ESV, in a tradition that goes back, I believe, to Luther, the Lord, as a translation of the divine name, is in all caps, or what's actually called technically in typography, small caps, because the first is capitalized of the, mm-hmm. the last three are in small caps. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, which is Adonai, which is equivalent to the word master. And in the New Testament as well, there's a comparable word. And um, I, I know I got that mixed, mixed up a little bit. Set that aside. But in the Bible, there are lords who are not God, right? There's the Lord who's like the Lord of the vineyard or something like that. And this is that kind of word. It can mean Lord or master. So Yahweh says to my Lord, and that Adonai is not capitalized. It's lowercase. So the this is actually kind of, uh, it kind of makes me chuckle, and I'm sad that it does. But the, the way that the uh, Tree of Life version handles this 
in, in my judgment, is just totally mixed up because we got to take a step back and see what do they do? Okay, when it comes to Yahweh, instead of translating it Lord, okay, which is tradition going all the way back at least to the beginning of the Reformation, and actually, I think, uh, way back further to the Septuagint, you want to talk about Jewish tradition, that's a good place to look. They do what they do an analog of what the Jews do. So the Jews, when they encounter the divine name, which is the Tetragrammaton, four letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, and we actually don't know for sure what the vowels are that, um, so we don't actually know the pronunciation of the divine name. I talk about this a little bit in the article. What the Jews do is they replace those vowel points with the vowels of Adonai, which Mm -hmm. this is complex. I'm sorry, it's just reality, which is how we get the word Jehovah. It's Y-H-W-H with the vowels of Adonai stuck in. So I wrote another article some time ago that uh, raised some people's ire on the internet, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, for saying the word Jehovah is a colossal, unrepealable European mistake that was never supposed to be a a word. It was a code. Tell us what you really think. Don't pull punches. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like the all caps or small caps Lord is. It was a way for Jews to remind themselves, okay, when I encounter Yahweh, in order not to possibly violate the third commandment, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, instead of saying Yahweh, I'll say Adonai, okay? So in this English translation, in the Tree of Life version, they translate Yahweh as Adonai, which puts you in this weird situation. If you're looking at Psalm 110.1 in the Tree of Life version, it says, Adonai declares to my Lord. But actually, it's important to recognize it's Yahweh declaring to Adonai. Uh, So you can piece all that together if you know what's going on, but I just feel like you've added this layer of code to something that's already difficult. Okay, And And then here's my big thing. Um, and I, this is a criticism I've made also, and I, anybody who knows my channel, I, I hope you believe me and I hope this is true. I don't live in this criticism mode. I don't really enjoy it, but I have to, I have to stand for truth in this case as the Lord gives me light to see it. When, okay, I gave this criticism also of the Legacy Standard Bible put out by John MacArthur and my friend, Will Varner, who went to Bob Jones University like I did, but a few decades before I did. I respect them. I love those guys. Uh, I expect the LSB to overall be good. But some of the marketing language about the way they use Yahweh as a transliteration in the Bible, in their Bible translation, I just wasn't buying. Why? Because when you turn to the passage in, I want to say it's Luke 22. I wish I knew this right offhand, um, where Jesus talks, uh, raises Psalm 1101. You know, could I get a little help here from the comments or somebody? Help me find that passage where Jesus quotes Psalm 1101. I, th- I think he does it in Matthew 22. Yeah. Matthew 22. Ma- Michael has memorized the Bible, so that he's a kind of freak of nature. So you don't need any That's help from awesome. the comment section. Okay. Um, he says, okay, Matthew 22, 41. Um, while the Pharisees were gathered together, no, I'm reading the ESV here. Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? And in Greek, if you hover over it in Logos Bible software, that's kurios, which is just the standard Greek word for Lord. Saying, the Lord said to my Lord. And actually, if you hover over those, you'll see that in both cases, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Matthew, and then presumably Jesus himself, uh, because Jesus did speak Greek. Sometimes people say to me, well, he spoke Aramaic, so actually what we're reading is a translation. Even if that's the case, the Spirit had a chance to choose what was quote-unquote more accurate. The Spirit 
of God could have in all places. This is where he should have done it, you know, under this view. He should have made it clear. He should have transliterated. He should have transliterated. Then Yahweh, which is the closest you can come in Greek, said to, you know, Adonai, you could have done that in Greek. That's what the spirit should have done. Instead, the spirit chose kurios both times. So this really oh, wow. hyper-focus on that. using exactly right, exactly the right word, um, God just didn't seem to have that concern. He expects you to be able to get this from context, and those who need that more technical level of knowledge can learn the biblical languages and go find it. And this is a relatively commonly known thing, but I haven't seen this point about um, Jesus's quotations of Psalm 10, Psalm 1101 come up very often, and I find it to be determinative. So I don't say that LSB did wrong to transliterate with Yahweh. Fine, that's useful. I can see why that's useful to some people. I still think 1 Corinthians 14 tells us we should use words people know, and Lord means the name of God in, in the context in which it's used. So I would still stick, okay, so stick with Lord if I had to choose one. But but I certainly can't say it's obligatory when Jesus himself didn't do it. Okay, so That's give good. me some exceptions. Like meet me, meet me halfway with some of this. Okay, so like James, yeah. Jacob, Mary, Miriam, uh, Jude, yep. Judah, right? Like... Like, are there opportunities where, like, are we, like, pulling Jewishness out when it's, like, it's not going to be a huge, if it's the, you know, if we've got Judah in here instead of Jude, and I've got Jacob instead of uh, uh, James, right? Like, does it really, James. is it really Greco size? Like, I don't feel like I'm, I don't, I'm not making it so unreadable. Like, I, I would say, okay, so maybe, right. maybe yeah. Yeshua HaMashiach, but, like, weren't, what about some of those things that, like, there are some you know, uh, transliterations into, uh, some English words, but we use kind of more Hebrew words in our day-to-day vocabulary with things like shofar and matzah and, you know, yeah. uh, like, like what about some of those things? Like, can't, can't we use some Jewish words? Yeah. You, you're, you've got me still in my briar patch. I'm happy to handle this one. Um, I would definitely give Christian liberty to others who disagree with me on this. This is, you don't have to be a sectarian if you disagree with me on this. Uh, here, here's what I would say. Um, proper nouns are a special category in language. Um, and so there are tons of transliterations of places and names in the Bible. I just looked up this word, random reasons. My word nerd mind goes to weird places sometimes. Hatzalel pony, you know, that's not an English word because that's not a common name. But all of the major common names in the Bible, they have not just transliterations into English, but translations, okay? So to translate the word, you know, Yaakov in Hebrew into English is Jacob. To translate the, the um, you know, I'm forgetting right now exactly how James is spelled in Greek. That's really terrible. I'm going to pull it up right here in Laura's Bible software. Um, to translate that rather than just transliterating it, it is it's Yaakobos. So you could say, well, we should translate it or transliterate it, Jacob. Um, but no, it is an English word, as it were. It's James. That is our convention for uh, naming him. And actually, I looked into this some time ago because I was getting comments on this at some point. Um, and I saw that it, it, it just so happened that James just had a really tortuous history. That that word had a tortuous history of transliteration coming all the way from ultimately from Hebrew into English, but it is our convention. And in as much as possible, we need to be translating into English so people can understand. And I think that applies to names as well. I can see how people would see differently that we can make some strategic 
you know, uh, adjustments to the tradition so that some, some little echoes like between Joshua and Jesus um, and Jacob and James become more clear. Um, I, I respect that viewpoint, but my viewpoint would be 1 Corinthians 14, edification requires intelligibility. And in English, we have a translation of that name, Jacob, for, uh, for the New Testament character. One more thing. Um, have you ever heard of the Nuremberg trials, you know, the Nazis after, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. after World War II? Okay. In, um, in German, I'm going to look this up to make sure I'm absolutely right. I believe it is N, yeah, N-U with an umlaut, so new, R-N-B-E-R-G. So the English translation of that somewhat difficult to pronounce German proper name is Nuremberg. And there's no like, you know, campaign that I'm ever, I've ever been aware of people saying, no, you've got to pronounce it the way the Germans do. No, it's a standard thing. In Spanish, London, you could just say London. Why not? No, they say Londres. There's a translation because Londres is a Spanish word and Nuremberg is an English word. We don't have English words for every last little hamlet in Germany. Um, I would expect those to be transliterated into the closest English possible, but we do for some of the major cities that are significant in our history. I would say the same is true of James and those few people who really need to have that technical knowledge that yes, okay, James was Jacobas. They can gain that knowledge through footnotes at least, or through learning the biblical languages. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does. But what about the old Testament? We translate that Jacob is Jacob and not James. Because Jacob is an English word. Like th- we have a name in our language for that person and it's Jacob. And we have a name for the person uh, called uh, a person called James and it's James. Uh, I can see again, someone disagreeing with me here and saying, well, we should stick, get closer to the original, but I'm that I'm resisting that impulse to think that uh, to think that exactly the way the original had it, the way they pronounced it is something that we need to stick close to. I'm, I'm again aiming for understandability. Right. Mm-hmm. So it would be like maybe if uh, a Spanish speaker named uh, or a Hispanic named Miguel comes to America, they might opt to go from by Michael because Miguel and Michael are the same. But if it was a Spanish name that had no English equivalent, and I don't know, I'm, right. I'm pulling this out of the air. Maybe Santiago. I don't know of an English equivalent. That's St. James, is. by the way. What's that? Oh, it means Saint Santiago James. is St. <laughs> James, it. ironically. Dang it. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Talk about ironics, man. But, <laughs> that is ironic. Okay, so, well, that, uh, but just to pull, I, I don't know. There, I know there are Spanish names that don't translate. Sure. Then you would say, then that one would be one you transliterate. Same kind of idea, uh, I think, is what you're saying. Okay, I'm going to actually yeah. jump from this specific Tree of Life version uh, to, because I, I would like to finish with some broader principles and maybe even because the broader principle is what makes for a good translation. But uh, I, yeah. I'm actually going to layer two questions here. All right. I'm just going to pack them in. Yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize in advance because there's a lot of internet chatter. It feels like right now and, and not just right now, but it, it comes in waves. People criticizing the ESV as being the complementarian Bible or being the right. complementarian reformed Bible. Uh, and man, the criticisms are super harsh from the Twitter trolls against the ESV. Right. So maybe you could use that as a launch pad for answering the question of what makes for a good or bad translation. 
Yeah, I wish you could catch me in the future. Uh, I am planning this summer, Lord willing, to write an academic paper uh, evaluating that controversy over the ESV. You know, I, I obviously I have a preliminary viewpoint that I'd like to fill out better. I actually do think that, and I said this in my article actually, because I ended with talk about the ESV and the challenges against it as being, you know, a complementarian sectarian translation. I said they probably could have uh, save themselves some grief by translating Genesis 3.16 more literally um, the way the tradition has had it in the ESV. I'm going to look this up and make sure I say it exactly right. This is the big one that I think is most often brought up, but your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, I I feel like I don't have a full grasp of the complexities here, and I'd, I'd especially like to use a little tonic um, that I've used often in these debates, and that is by look, just looking at the interpretive history or translational history, which in this case would probably be about the same thing. Um, often I'll find that the debate has gone back basically the entire history of the Christian church, and that uh, it's God himself who chose to leave a measure of ambiguity there, so we probably don't need to freak out about it. Um, I acknowledged, therefore, that the, that in that passage, the ESV possibly uh, took among available options the one that best fit complementarianism and therefore left themselves open for criticism. And I think my principle here is not so much don't be sectarian as use prudence. Um, everybody has a group. There is no such thing as a person without any bias or perspective. I don't sit nowhere. I certainly don't sit in heaven. I have to make my judgments from where I sit. But uh, it's what C.S. Lewis called bulverism, named after one Ezekiel Bulver who heard his parents arguing. And the mom said, you only said that because you're a man. And he realized he could, you know, relativize every argument by telling the person why they said it, you know, from out of their character. Obviously, that's a postmodernism strategy, a strategy of postmodernism. Um, I don't sit nowhere. So what have I decided to do? I've decided that I'm... I'm going to be very self-conscious about where I sit. And I am a complementarian. I try to be a gracious one and a careful one. I have friends across the aisle, uh, especially James Michael Smith, Disciple Dojo. He and I have been talking recently. Um, I try to recognize, uh, you know, gradation among my disagreements. Um, I still can benefit from egalitarian writers, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, um, instead of saying, instead of pretending, I'm going to come to the Bible with no presuppositions. I'm going to translate it straight. I'm going to get it right and some translators talk this way, especially when they do their own like one-off translations. Uh, D.B. Hart talked that way in the intro to his uh, Bible translation. You know, um, the whole tradition is messed up, he said. You know, we, we just got to go straight literal. Um, instead of doing that, I say, okay, I'm going to take my presuppositions, my theology self-consciously to the text over and over again. That's what Grant Osborne called the hermeneutical spiral. And I'm going to try to draw them together. So at first, I am going to try to see, you know, yes, make the Bible fit the theology I bring to it. But then if it just doesn't fit, I'm going to adjust my theology a little bit. And then when I come back to the text again, um, I hopefully have come closer then to the, the the Bible's own view. I don't think we're ever going to get away in this, you know, veil of tears from the human finiteness that God has made part of our lot. Um, but I'm still willing from where I sit to call some Bibles sectarian, even though the judge of all the earth hasn't chosen right now to you know, show clearly which denomination, which Bible translation or translations most closely approximate you know, the absolute truth. I, I, I await judgment day. 
um, I still end up having to say uh, some people have done wrong. And, and can I prove to be wrong in the end? Well, sure, I can prove to be wrong about all kinds of things, but that doesn't mean I'm going to back off from all of judgment, all judgments. I still, as an individual before the Lord, and then as a church leader, somebody who is responsible to shepherd others, I, I'm asked, I'm called to make judgments. So this is a very complex field. Um, I try to give as much leeway as I can at places. And I, like you uh, brought out guys uh, beforehand when we just started this, I treated the tree of life version differently than I treated the new world translation or some of the, you know, Arabic translations that I talked about that I think do fudge the, um, the deity of Jesus Christ. Those are very, very serious problems. And yet I have to say while acknowledging, yes, it's quite possible that I am wrong on some aspects of theology. I still have to call the, the spade a sectarian when I see it. Okay. So kind of maybe some some more rapid fire questions as we kind of wrap this up um okay. because uh, i have maybe some questions if you have a little bit of extra time where we could uh maybe snatch some stuff for patreon maybe if you've got some time if not no big deal sure but uh what would you think about just just real quickly christian brothers sitting next to you they have a tree of life version uh are you inherently suspicious of them when they're reading a tree of life version uh, no, my shepherd heart comes out. I mean, I'm assuming I'm not encountering this person in my own church. Uh, but I'm just delighted. I mean, I have to know more about the the context. Sure. If it's in my church, that's where uh, some concerns arise because I do see a ditch on that side of the road, both practically and ultimately theologically. Um, but if it's on the airplane, I'm delighted to have a Christian next to me, presumably. That's a great thing. Sure. Okay, so... so uh... It's not a. It's not an evil translation. It's not a heretical translation. The no. Christians who use it, uh, you would you would maybe encourage them to use a a more faithful, uh, as you would see it, a more faithful uh, uh, rendering of of Hebrew and Greek into a modern language and vernacular that would be more suitable for us. Uh, but but there's nothing in it that would uh, instill in you an inherent suspicion of their doctrine about their character, you know, their worship of God. But just man. I, I would want you to have something I think is better. Is, I mean, does that, that seem like a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I'm not a book burner. Um, I'm not telling anybody to throw the Tree of Life version away. My typical advice is before you read outside of the main sort of body of evangelical Protestant, you know, Reformation type uh, English Bible translations, uh, I would make sure that you're a master of those. And I think that our tradition there has served us very well. Uh, but no, I, I think if you can read the two together and then gain some appreciation for why the Tree of Life version does what it does, I assume you can get some instruction from it. For example, the mm -hmm. word instruction, Torah in Hebrew, I mentioned in my article, I thought it was kind of neat to, to see the word Torah in the New Testament. I That was you know thought-provoking for me. Um, as long as you understand why they're doing what they're doing, I, I could see you getting some benefit out of it. That's good. Okay. Hey, I appreciate it, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for tuning into the program. For those of you who are watching, uh, you're not familiar with Mark. Maybe you're you've got uh, a Tree of Life Bible that you love and you cherish, and you're like, man, he just he just deflated my my love of this Bible. I would encourage you go check out Mark's stuff. He said it before. I'll say it again. I've watched Mark's stuff a ton of it, and I think ninety nine point nine percent of the time 
He is talking about how you can have confidence in these translations. It's encouraging. It's inspiring. It, it roots us into like love and cherishing of the Bible that we have today. Um, there are these moments where it's like, well, we need to think deeply about some of these new translations and the way that they're approaching things and, and the differentness of these Bibles that sometimes we're attracted to is the very thing that we might want to double check before we get completely bought into them. So I would encourage you to go check out Mark's channel. Uh, we, we need to be empowering scholars that are doing good work in these areas. So subscribe to his channel, help him get a bazillion viewers, because I think he's a, he's a person that we can trust with a microphone. So I would encourage you guys to go do that. Uh, it's in the link of the description, of the, not even just the description of the video, the title of the video. So go check that out. Uh, Roundtree, do you have any closing thoughts before we sign off? Uh, man, I think my closing thought would be, you know, we, we battle about all the translations and we make, uh, Mark, I think you make fantastic points and, uh, but I, I also enjoy and appreciate your emphasis on like the, just the standard Bible translations, uh, that, that you, you can't go wrong with those. Uh, and, and I think what I would say to our viewers is, uh, really just obey the Bible, read the Bible and obey the Bible. And if you're right. doing that, God is happy with you. And uh, and I think, you know, a lot of times, I, I don't know, I'm guessing because I'm not in everybody's life, but I'm guessing that a lot of times the all the like fighting of Christians back and forth and the, you use the word sectarianism, uh, over Bible translations, I wonder how much priority there is on actually reading and obeying the Bible. Yeah, and uh, and man, that's that's where my head is at. Like, let's let's go there. Let's read it and obey it. And um, you know, and at the same time, as Christians, we can uh, we can talk about the finer points, and there's there's beauty in that. But uh, let's love each other in the process. And Mark, I think you do a great job at that. Yeah, thank you. I, I totally agree with what you just said, one hundred percent. Cool. Any closing thoughts from you, Mark, before we sign off? Yeah, you know, that the feeling that arises in my heart when I hear Michael say those things. I mean, sometimes I've had this happen in interviews where I just want to go take it all back. Like, you know, oh man, I I I don't I just don't like criticizing fellow brothers in Christ. Uh, and I hope that they will hear in my words a love for the Lord and a love for my neighbor as myself. Um I have had to speak negative thoughts about something that people who with whom I'll spend eternity in heaven did. And I'm sorry about that. But um, I do think that you can know the gospel and know Jesus through the tree of life version, and you can obey him uh, with your whole heart. And I would encourage those who stick to the tree of life version to That's do good. just those things. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe one day we'll get you and, uh, and, and Brown or, you know, even Keener just have a discussion. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do any kind of debate, but just, just to talk through this, why this and why not that? I think, I think people even watching in the comment section would be just they're asking for to it. See <laughs> both sides to kind of discuss through some of these things. Well, I don't I don't understand why you're doing this. Well, this is why we're doing this. And well, okay, but but what about this? And and just to have those kinds of brotherly conversations, you know, uh, you'd you'd be someone I know that both of those guys would love to sit down with and chat. So. Uh, anyway, maybe we can make something like that happen in the future. But guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share the content. If you can support us, there are links in the description. Thank you so much, and we will see you next Wednesday. Uh, we're going to be covering uh, Jesus' healings. Oftentimes, it's a cessationist argument is used that, hey, uh, uh, nobody's healing people like Jesus. Therefore, the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. The gift of healing has ceased. Uh, we're going to kind of tackle some of that in our episode on Wednesday, so tune in for that. Uh, anyway, blessings, guys. We'll see you uh, next, not next week. We'll see you on Wednesday. Blessings. <laughs>
Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.